I guess I should have stayed in bed My pillow wrapped around my head Instead of waking up to find A nightmare of a different kind She went away This just doesn't seem to be my day She didn't have to say a lot Her pretty eyes reveal the plot For someone else she wanted more And so I walked her to the door What could I say? This just doesn't seem to be my day My, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my Am I, how I wish she would have stayed This just doesn't seem to be my day Hi everybody, it's Danny DeVito And I'm asking you from the bottom of my heart All over the state of New York Stay home I mean, everybody. I mean, you got this virus, this pandemic, and, you know, young people can get it. They can transmit it to old people. The next thing you know, well, I'm out of here. Please, do us a favor, all of us, and stay home and not spread this virus around. Thank you. Watch a little TV, why don't you? are clean and honorable and out there setting a uh, uh, setting the pace i think a dr fauci probably never heard of him. he's a very fine research top doctor at national institute of health working hard doing something about research on this disease of aids who is to blame <laughs> you are Perfect position and race to the bottom is on the air. Time to sit back and enjoy some refreshing Winslow tea. 
Try it hot, lukewarm, or over ice. Have it with milk and sugar, or a lemon wedge, or oh natural. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's Winslow Tea, a New York City tradition since 1872. Ask for it by name at the tea house or your local greengrocer, because that's how you know it's Winslow. What is the creature that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three in the evening? The hero, Oedipus, gave the answer. Race to the bottom, causing the Sphinx's death. From the Winslow Tea Broadcast Booth in moderate Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm talking about the the weather. I usually say what the weather is right there. What's the tepid? In tepid Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm John Reed. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and this is Race to the Bottom, the award-winning, just claiming it like a barbecue sauce. It is award-winning for all intensive purposes. That's Moondog in the background. Bird's Lament, so good. And boy, do I have a show for you today. On the program, we have Seth Simons, who I first discovered uh, on the 
wasteland that is twitter.com. I know I quit Twitter, but then I realized I had a, a secret account and I booted it back up. But this guy that I really uh, like, Anthony Atamanik, who I first knew about at Upright Citizens Brigade, and I would watch perform and improvise. And then he went on to do the President Show and does the best omelet bar impersonation out there for what that's worth. He, he retweeted a, a article that Seth Simons wrote about the, how the comedy industry has a, a big alt-right problem. All these uh, scumbags. Camouflaging hate speech as quote-unquote comedy. And I read that article and followed his fearless reporting on Twitter and said, I need to get this dude on Race to the Bottom, and I did, and I'm excited to share that with you. In the background, this is Tawate, Technova. You might have, um, I was I was talking, maybe it'll come back up if it does. This is the sample that they did in the Tribe Called Quest song where he's like, Now you got my heart for the evening. Kiss my cheek move, then you confuse things. Help me find my way, that Fife Dog sang rap, and R.I.P. Fife Dog, it was the anniversary of his death a couple days ago. But he, it's I think it's in Portuguese, and he just kind of sang something that sounded like it to, to make that hook with the help of, of Jay Dilla. I thought that was cool. How about the, speaking of cool things, how about that mashup? So again, I'm going back in time. We're going back in time. Remember that? Is that Back to the Future 2 or 3 where Huey Lewis did that, did that one? Because he did the power of love for the first one, right? So I've been looking back at the mashups that I made this time last year. And I made two for last year's show, mashup 43 and 44. And last year, oh, here we go. If you know that Tribe Called Quest song right now, you're saying, wow, that's really cool. If you don't, you're like, why is he interrupting himself to play that? And either way, it's okay. So last week I played uh, an, an updated mashup where I put new things from this year. I was unable to do that because nothing really caught my ear or eye. I don't I don't care about the um, the shrimp and the cereal stuff from this week or the boat that's in the Suez Canal. Man, people just beat these stories to death. No, I don't I don't need none of that. 
So I just looked at these old mashups from last year, and it's interesting because we all know how weird time is passing. Weirdly? Use the adverb form there. Weirdly, time is passing. That sounds weird. And so it's interesting to see just in my life what was going on last year. I, obviously, everything was at a standstill. So the only thing that I can really track is what my wife and I were watching. So I put a Birth of Cool song in there because there was a Miles Davis documentary we watched that came out around uh, this time last year that was pretty good. Um, and then just a lot of uh, the continuing anxiety of, you know, this this time last year, things were really bad here in New York. And you had Danny DeVito telling you to stay inside. And I felt like I wanted to break my rusty cage and run. Like Soundgarden threw that in. This just doesn't seem to be my day. That's how we were all feeling. Especially someone who had someone sick or worse. Now, this one still works. From Kids in the Hall, Who's to Blame? That sketch and uh, got a lot of blame going around. I think as this Asian hate continues and we see the ramifications of things that Alma Barbs has said, it's, it's also interesting, like, why is it so exacerbated now? And I also think that it obviously comes around to blame, and as we have some sort of view of the over the horizon, and because, you know, you could criticize a lot of things that Biden has done, but I feel like, at least with COVID, he's, he's been pretty great. And, and so people are seeing, man, get this guy come in, things get fixed. Cleaning up the Republican messes as, as Democrat presidents are wont to do in a lot of ways. And then they create their own little ones. But so as it, it starts to really feel like, man, it's just so obvious at this time last year, Omelette Bar. And I call him Omelette Bar because after he got his, his ass handed to him on the building the wall negotiations, he went to Mar-a-Lago and was standing, standing at like a, an omelette bar and was f- photographed in his khakis and his dumb red hat. Just some douchebag at an omelet bar and I felt like that was the encapsulation of who this guy really was so and nobody wants to hear that guy's name the Cheeto in charge right (laughs) um but anyway now that it seems like so painfully obvious how how horribly mismanaged and how many deaths that administration is responsible for you got to shift the blame one of his crazy minions was saying he knows it came from a lab in Wuhan now sick sick and sad and and then the mashup ended with Andrew Bird 
my favorite Andrew Bird song, but then I, I supercharged it because I only put my favorite part of my favorite Andrew Bird song. How cool is that? Because the thing about Andrew Bird, if, if you know him, guys like uh, what Tom Sharpling would call an egghead, a little bit of an egghead. His lyrics, he shows off too much with his lyrics. Words like palindrome, like noxious. And mitosis. It's like, you just say things that don't distract from how beautiful your music is, please. But I don't I don't expect him to apologize for that. But I do expect myself to apologize because I want to keep keep a tight ship. Is that an expression? Run a tight ship here. Morally. That's why it's time for my next segment of the show called Excusez-moi. I'm going to teach you how to say excuse me in French. That means I am sorry. Excusez-moi. Excuse-moi. Pardon. Pardonnez-moi. Je suis désolé. So, yeah, I'm not going to apologize on other people's behalf. I'm going to do it for, on my own behalf. If I could apologize on some on other people's behalf, you know, people are starting to get out more and, and people are on the streets. And one thing that I would apologize on other people's behalf for is everybody loves their Everybody's got a dog. Quarantine was hard and people said, let's get a dog. Come on. Why not? We're at home. But when you're walking down the sidewalk, your dog isn't so special that you can let him out at him or her or them at at full leash. Give them uh, full leash reign and just let them go wherever uh, they want. Take up the whole damn sidewalk. People got to pass your dog. You're you're creating a, a clothesline. You're taking up the whole sidewalk, man. It's not a joke. Like that complaint? No, here's what I'm going to apologize for. Last week, in the mashup, I talked about Andrew Cuomo, and I and I poked some fun at Andrew Cuomo. Um, but I failed to mention that I just think he's horrible, and he should resign. And I know this is kind of a tongue-in-cheek show, but I just wanted to say Cuomo sucks for a multitude of different reasons. And you know what else? who else sucks? What else sucks is Amazon. And I was talking to my household last night, and we've decided it's, it's time to uh, take a break from Amazon. We spend money uh, on Amazon getting stuff delivered. And do Whole Foods because the produce and stuff is good. But we, we're going to find alternate ways. Amazon, it, until they uh, allow people to unionize and, and have some kind of reckoning. And they're on social media now going after anyone who talks about how they're a monopoly and how evil they are. So, um, I, uh, 
just race to the bottom community. Let's try to do this together. Supposedly Target. I mean, all these places suck, but it's a, it's a, speaking of Target, it's a targeted uh, boycott um, on Amazon for me. Supposedly Target, uh, you know, as, as far as the sundries, sundry items, you can usually uh, get that stuff, like if you order it from Target and, and uh, you know, if you get your groceries delivered, do something else, Fresh Direct or Instacart. Let's take a break from Amazon. Okay. All right, I got to step on the gas here a little bit. I guess it's time to... So we have our March sadness, our defeat eight that we need to do. And I also need to do this interview with Seth Simons. How about I do the first half of March sadness and then and then we'll listen to my talk with Seth. That sound good? Let me just set this up here. We'll do the West Coast contests of March sadness. Our tournament style showdown between listeners' sad memories. And in the West Coast, we had Well, it's it's way it's south and central. We had on the road first forensics. On the road was this story about a guy in going on tour in Europe, which I thought was really interesting because that was a always a dream of mine to go play music in in Europe with a rock band, and I never got to do it. So it was interesting hearing this person talking about their time in Finney, England, and getting stuck in this smelly, dark room away from the rest of his band and being, like, forced to watch BBC documentaries on Russia's roughest prisons, like with toothpicks holding his eyes open like it's clockwork orange. I'm not sure if that's exactly what happened, but it was something like that. And that, and On the Road went up against forensics. And... Forensics, as you might be able to tell from my the way I've set this up, forensics won. And here's forensics. In high school, I had an on-again, off-again relationship for much of my senior year. Sorry, I forgot a word. In high school, I had an on-again, off-again relationship that for much of my senior year was an unacknowledged limbo. We'd get together and snog, as the British say, but never quite publicly declared ourselves to be dating. We were both on the forensics team, and these trysts would sometimes happen when we went to tournaments out of town. In the depths of winter, a small, one might say elite group of us, competed in a tournament several states away. She and I hung out that weekend, 
but we had not gotten physical yet. As was often the case, we had a long van ride back home through the night on Sunday. In anticipation of a night of romance, I scored a seat in the back corner of the van and was ecstatic when she sat beside me. I thought it was a little weird that her ex-boyfriend sat beside us as well. But being an eager young man, I did not really care. What I could not have known at that time, but what would be revealed over the course of the next several hundred miles, was that there was still an ember between the two of them. Predictably, their flame was rekindled and I spent the night listening to their kissing noises and being bumped by her knees and elbows while the driver smoked cigarettes and I looked out at dark, soggy Midwestern cornfields. And our judge in the uh, Sad 16 said, I prefer forensic for its forensics for its reversal of fortune element. I also like how the sense of self goes from high, one might say elite, to extremely low. Not when the girl refuses to acknowledge him as a romantic interest all senior year, but only when he becomes a trapped seatmate next to a, the kissing couple, forced to witness his hopes dying a cornfield backgrounded death. And then our judge that put this into the final four said, first of all, a high school forensics team with out-of-town tournaments? My high school had a volleyball team once we went to Staten Island. Anyway, this is a pretty sad one. Were there really no other seats in the entire van? It seems unusually cruel to sit next to your former boyfriend while snogging with your former, former boyfriend. All right, so, forensics, welcome to the final four. And then our other contest in the South and Central Division was Culture Shock, which was the story of a young man who went to college at 16, believe it or not, who grew up in Hong Kong and India, went to college for a year, felt completely out of place, and then went back to high school. It's like a nightmare. I've I've had nightmares where I am back in high school, but I'm the age I am now. This, This guy really did it. But that guy did not make it to the final four. Instead, it was Trilogy. It's January in Chicago, meaning it's cold as a witch's titty. But I'm wearing flip-flops because my feet are swollen like hams. Sad part one. I had a baby three days ago and said baby is in the NICU, but I've already been discharged, so I have to go visit my own kid in the hospital. Sad part two. I step into the hospital elevator with my flip-flops, and some old lady with big hair and cheap perfume asked me, Oh, so you're here to have your baby? To which I explained politely, No, I've already had the baby, you old bag. I don't think she really said the old bag part. To which she tells me, God works in mysterious ways. Sad part three. Our judge that uh, presided over... The Sad 16 said, This sad story about having a newborn in the hospital while you have to wear flip-flops in the Chicago cold and bear the sanctimonious nonsense of total strangers blows the disgruntled general manager out of the water. That was our no-jazz story from the Sad 16. 
And our judge that put it into the final four said, yeah, this sucks. That lady sucks, flip-flops, and winners suck. Having babies in the NICU really sucks. All right. So, in the final four in the South and Central will be Trilogy Against Forensics. How exciting. Now, it's time for my interview with Seth Simmons. I'll talk a little bit more about this afterwards. Oh, man, I'm going to really have to step on the gas. Okay, Uh, enjoy this interview with the brilliant Seth Simmons. I'm here with Seth Simons, who I'm really excited to talk to. And I've been reading your stuff since I think Anthony Atamanik forwarded your New Republic article. And I read that in, in early February and then I've been following you on the hellscape that is Twitter um, since then and reading um, your newsletters and um, your reporting has a lot to do with the kind of stuff I've been thinking about and talking about on the show, the internet and the alt-right and how cancel culture is BS and um, with my background in, in comedy and and improv and stuff. And I did the whole UCB thing. I've just, it's really hits uh, a nerve with, with me in in a really fascinating way. So I'm, I'm glad you could talk to me about this stuff. Of course. really appreciate you saying that. And uh, I appreciate Anthony forwarding it. Uh, I didn't know he did that. It was called The Comedy Industry Has a Big Alt-Right Problem, um, How Safe Spaces for Transgressive Humor, Both Online and in Real Life, Help help Breed a Hateful Ideology. So I guess that that kind of linchpin of, of your article, which kind of deals with a lot of these folks that probably a lot of my listeners have never heard of, um, thankfully, but some of them are, you know, are bubbling up to the surface and, and this, this stuff kind of cuts across all kind of stratas of the, of the comedy scene. But something that you said was how you talk about how the pretense of irony hangs over everything, but the pretense is all it ever is. And Mm -hmm. telling jokes gives way to saying what you mean jokingly. Yeah. Um, I I love the way that you put that because it's been something that I've thought about. I mean, not even just with comedy, but when Mm -hmm. people are mean, people can be mean and then say, I'm just kidding. You know, that's when a, a classic human um, trick. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And in comedy, especially, I mean, a, a lot of people, I think, especially the sort of subculture described in that article, use comedy as an ethical framework to just be cruel and be mean to people they don't like and groups of people they don't like. And they always do retreat to that. It's just jokes. It's just comedy as though comedy exists in this weird realm of non-meaning and non-belief where no ideas are transmitted through words. And Mm. it's, you know, obviously nonsensical in and of itself, but also feels like gaslighting to have these people who claim to be, you know, the true adherence to uh, of of comedy and uh, b- the power of comedy to just constantly say that this art form they love doesn't mean anything and can't be used as a vessel of communication and it's all just you know nonsense. 
Yeah, it makes me think about these these think pieces that were written when Rush Limbaugh died about how people were like, oh, but the thing you didn't know about him is he was so funny, yeah. which I just cannot get my head around. I mean, I ended up, I did hate listen to Rush Limbaugh for years. I would be appalled to, if you combined like all the hours I've listened to Rush in my car, but I never thought he was funny. Mm-hmm. I thought he was good with radio silence and and good to kind of grab the listener's attention to to kind of dump garbage into people's mind for three hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but never never funny. Yeah, I uh, I didn't listen to him enough to comment, but uh, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. And also, that to me speaks to how in comedy and probably in most performing arts the like essential skill that determines whether you are successful or not is less being funny or being original or having things to say than just being relentless and ruthless and never stopping and being able to you know make people want to hear the next thing that you have to say which doesn't necessarily have to be a funny thing but could just be a thing they agree with but that no one else is saying yeah Um, see that whole subculture again which relates to two things one is this kind of the three hour <laughs> benchmark also relates to Joe Rogan, who does yeah. these three hour shows when when you have that it's kind of like exposure therapy when you just have people's attention for that long, you really kind of have carte blanche to yeah to, to really change people's thought processes, right yeah it's really bizarre to me that just that being a phenomenon and i didn't really understand sort of the relationship that he had with his listeners until the summer of 2019 i was uh, subletting in la and the guy i lived with would just come home from work uh like take off his shirt lie down on the couch turn on the tv and watch rogan for hours and this is just like a normal friendly guy who works at a travel agency <laughs> And who I like get along with nicely, but to just do that, I can't. That was so strange to me. Yeah, millions and millions of people have that sort of. Uh, he's the thing they come home to listen to, or that they listen to while they're working. And then anytime he he gets criticized for say saying transphobic shit, you have the like people who say no, it's just comedy. You have the people who say, well, he repeats whatever's in front of them, and then you have the people who say, well, he's right. And it's like impossible to have any coherent conversation around it. Yeah. And he's just as a sidebar, he's also someone where I've never I've never seen a clip of him on his show or him doing stand up that I thought approached anything in the ballpark of comedy or a joke or anything that would make me laugh. That's something I just don't get. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's like this whole world of people who have somehow manufactured careers for themselves where they can be millionaire comics without ever making a joke. (laughs) They just go up and say, you know, the stuff you're not supposed to say and everyone goes nuts for them and they sell out and they get these huge deals. Yeah. uh, So you kind of poked the hornet's nest (laughs) with this stuff and touching upon how we established that these people have these rabid fans and especially with podcasts and streaming the 
bond that people form with their comedian quote unquote comedian of choice is mm-hmm. is pretty insane right and so calling any of these people out you've just had been attacked yeah i uh i mean the first time i experienced it was i guess actually it was a couple of years ago when i was an assistant editor at paste magazine and one of my writers uh just did an interview with moshe kasher where Moshe lightly roasted Opie and Anthony, and I, I put something about that in the headline. And Opie and Anthony fans found it, as they are wont to do, because they're always searching for anyone saying anything about um, their their idols. Uh, and they, within a matter of hours, were harassing not only my writer, who's also a friend of mine, but they like they found his phone number because he's an actor and he had his resume online. Then they found his sister's phone number uh, and were harassing her too, and like. Is both calling them and saying garbage and like making doctor's appointments so that then they got confirmation calls from doctors. And, and that was like my first taste of how sort of crazy those people are um, and uh, mean and cruel and just yeah. after the club. Um, then in 2019, uh, September, I, uh, Shane Gillis got hired by SNL and I like was a tipster sent me a uh, video of him saying a bunch of racist shit on his podcast a year earlier, um, which I posted uh, and that went viral and everyone else in media started finding the other homophobic and racist things and transphobic things he, sound in his po- he said in his podcast um, recently as a, a adult 30-year-old man. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, he was virtually unknown by that point, but he was friends with the Legion of Skanks, this um, group I touch on in a New Republic article who are, they just, they have a podcast and a whole career in fandom that they've built making fun of trans people and black people and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, so there is, at that point, you know, there was already that sort of entrenched group that a threat to anyone's right to say slurs on their podcast is a threat to their very existence. And they started coming through my history then threatening to dox me. And um, I guess at one point somebody did actually send me my address on Twitter, but I don't think I was doxed then in the way I was doxed earlier this year. But, uh, you know, that was when they realized I existed and have sort of been hounding me ever since for getting their hero, their God fired from SNL, um, who they believe would have made SNL a good show. Finally, <laughs> all these years of being a bad show, they yeah. think Gillis would have been the one to change it. And, uh, it's, you know, ever since then, I've just mostly not been able to move without them hounding me, which then evolved this year into the Opie and Anthony fan- fandom outright doxing me and my family and, um, my neighbor and my landlord and people who tweeted at me and, uh, harassing a lot of us. Yeah. A few things. One is that this Shane Gillis dude on us, you know, former S or did he ever get grace the no he was i've been fired in the space of like five days um, yeah before it premiered and but you know this whole just to touch on the whole fabrication of cancel culture he's he's doing great now right he's got some he's got this rabid fandom and what he's got probably some what he's got like a gofundme or something or 
how to make it. And I will momentarily let you know how much money he and his co-host are making off that. Uh, this is one that doesn't say the number they're making, but they have 11,758 patrons, uh, at least paying at least $1 a month. Yeah. So um, they're doing okay. Yeah. What do you think motivates it? Just em- emptiness or? Um, yeah, uh, probably that. Probably, um, you know, if you have certain beliefs about certain groups of people that you can't express in public, uh, I imagine you would become attached to the community where you can express them in private um, and that that would you know, change you and change the way you act. But uh, I don't know. It still seems alien to me. I, I, I periodically go and look at the like little community of Shane Gillis superfan accounts who have been after me since then just because I want to know if they're threatening people. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of them just seem to legitimately worship him and these other comics around him and post about them all day and make photoshops of them uh, and thirst for them and make compilation videos. And I don't know. I love comedy. I have some comedians who I, I think are really great, but uh, I can't really wrap my head around having <laughs> that relationship with the art I consume. Yeah, it's it's so weird. And then you, uh, I guess it was your most recent newsletter was about kind of how the conception of these people as comedians is kind of faulty anyway, right? They can just launder these right wing, racist, transphobic, you know, ideas, comedy, but they're no different than Tucker Carlson or whoever. Yeah, there are a lot of them who I just sort of see as extensions of that conservative media machine. I, and I don't think that they really get paid attention to that way because one, the sort of media that covers comedy is very small. There aren't a lot of comedy journalists and most of them sort of do it as fans. Um, they cover it from the perspective of fans and for an audience of fans. And it's all sort of trade magazine-y stuff based around interviews and reviews and just aggregation of the SNL clips. Yeah. Uh, those people generally aren't doing deep dives Um on someone like Andrew Schultz or listening to Joe Rogan for hours or, you know, Theo Vaughn for hours um, because, uh, you know, those guys aren't really mainstream comedy and they, they don't get much attention from the, you know, liberal media. Um, yeah. They do just spend hours each week recycling the stuff that they saw on the Federalist or on Fox or heard on Ben Shapiro's podcast and, uh, you know, that's all propaganda, frankly. And, you know, a lot of it is very hateful uh, that they recycle it into jokes. And, you know, that's what their audiences listen to and get from them um, is justification of their transphobia or their xenophobia. Um, or, you know, these people just go on such long rants about woke culture um, and yeah. stoke the culture war. Um and it's not really something you would see from the outside unless you have some reason to explicitly tune in. Well, it's it's interesting also because you you think about how culture is in a lot of ways progressing and how young I mean, I'm a I'm a teacher and, and my middle school students are just not hung up on this stuff. There's uh, by and large, just so much more accepting and open to these things. And then it's like, so part of you, you're 
I mean, in my mind, part of me is just like, well, these kind of retrograde ideas are just going to die out. And mm-hmm. then it's like, how are they going to be repackaged and made cool and transgressive in a fun way for young people? And I think the beat that you cover is it has something to do with that, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, it's they're, they're YouTubers. These people are all basically YouTubers. Yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about who the, the age group and demographics of their audiences. Maybe it is all, you know, Gen X and boomers. But uh, even if that were the case, they're still keeping these ideas alive for, you know, years to come. Yeah. And, and not Joe Rogan, though, because, uh, you know, my nephews, <laughs> Joe Rogan, you know, and they're, it, that's the that's the thing and that's the, also the this like you know as as we're trying to wrap our head around what free speech means it like with all these platforms and post january 6th and everything it's just this argument that the smartest best most altruistic argument is just gonna win out and let's just have more speech yeah is, is just seems to be really falling flat because again you have three hours of these people being platformed on joe rogan and my nephew sees jordan peterson or whatever and it's like man he makes some good points and it's just like and joe rogan's not pushing back on any yeah. of these things yeah there was it was such a weird dynamic in the last episode that he he just had jim brewer on and jim brewer like this comedian former tv actor who has just become sort of a adult conspiracy crank yeah. would it would be like he would say something wildly wildly transphobic and joe would be like no no and then just say you know the more polite transphobia in response and uh that you know that's the moderate approach is for joe to say no uh the government isn't funding trans <laughs> theology in the colleges um it's just you know it's just where the woke culture starts um and jim would talk about how he they would go on this long thing about uh it was what everyone complains about trans athletes and then jim said how you know his theory is that a lot of companies make up diseases so that they can sell the treatment and joe would politely redirect it away from that that dude jim brewer he's a Mets fan and I so am I and and I go to like Mets games and they put him on the jumbotron and I really hope they don't do that this year. I've kind of opined about platforming people, but then the other thing is that you've got all these like quote unquote canceled people that all just kind of get more and more nuts and and hang with each other and just get more toxic. Like I guess at some point Jim Brewer just got you know, untouchable to anybody to want to work with, probably just because he's a nightmare to be around. And now he's, you know, and then he just gets, just piles on. Yeah. I mean, I think the future of like cancel culture as it exists in comedy, which is accountability culture, which is abusers getting outed and yeah. you know, it's getting outed and shunned from polite spaces um, is one, they won't get shunned from a lot of polite spaces because the most polite spaces in stand-up comedy are clubs which are not polite spaces and to you know they will just you know as you said form their own social groups and tour together and you know cultivate their own audiences independent of other platforms uh and you know there are enough people out there who think that you know sexual harassers shouldn't fade away from public life that they will always have an audience and i know like a lot of comics you know respectable good comics who you know want to make those people go away 
who think that uh, there's nothing else you can do. They're always going to have that audience. And I'm not convinced that there's nothing that can be done, but uh, it uh, doesn't seem to bode well if if they're right. Though. The other thing that uh, just jumped out at me from the first article, and I, and you've kind of been following some of these people as they, I guess, are all moving to Austin now. So Austin can be excited about i you know i live in long island city and would go was super excited when i moved here and went to the creek in the cave all the time and um and then this place the stand which you've had uh, some really (laughs) wonderful interactions with the people who ran that and i guess run another venue in in manhattan um but that place was like a hallway in Long Island City. It was the most uncomfortable club I've ever been to in my life and went a couple times. But I was just really shocked by how well, I mean, those people were despicable. And then also the Creek in the Cave, you know, platformed uh, this, these Legion of Skank losers for for a really long time. And like Gavin um, Guinness hung out there a couple times with them and and i was just i couldn't believe it one of my longer term projects you know with my newsletter um and with the new republic article was to sort of respond to what i think is a popular defense of uh, all of these open racists and bigots uh and hateful people in comedy that defense being you know it's just jokes can't hurt anyone um and you know i sort of want to show that there is a traceable line from the people telling racist jokes going around town from club to club and podcast to podcast doing this to a real fascist street gang that did actual violence you know, at the Capitol insurrection in January, at, you know, uh, many other um, instances. And uh, I, you know, I sort of really want people to retire the idea that it's just jokes in favor of sort of a more critical interrogation of jokes and comedy. And the fact that comedy is words that communicates ideas and uh, sort of looking back towards the creek and the stand and the comedy scene itself, I think part of a, a big reason that all of these people like Gavin McInnes and the Legion of Skanks and um, other really, I think, hateful comics I could name uh, have gotten to the level of influence that they have is that if you're coming up in comedy, you sort of just have to accept that there are going to be racist people there in the same spaces as you. And if you you know try to do anything about it and speak out, you will get viciously harassed and shunned. And if you vote with your feet and just leave, then you will be giving up opportunities. And uh, those seem to me to be very problematic structural issues in comedy because, you know, uh, a a business where everyone accepts um, that they have to make ethical compromises to get ahead is a business where unethical people thrive and succeed. Um, And I don't see, you know, those hateful elements going away without sort of a concerted effort um, by the, you know, comedy's good guys. So, yeah, I'm, uh, really appreciate all this work that you do though. And I, I agree that it's like for some, I, as someone who really cares about comedy and I also really care about politics and just being a good person and, and being part of the, uh, hopefully evolving society. I think this is so crucial. Um, I thought we could end on a positive note and just talk about, because 
I think some people feel like if you, there's this kind of zero sum game where it's like, well, if you, you know, you're just censoring, you know, where, where it's not, it's, it's accountability, obviously, and it's not cancel culture. It's just, you know, if anything, call out culture. Um, but people are like, oh, well, then, you know, you can't be funny. You know, nobody's funny if you have all these rules, but I thought we could just celebrate some people who are not horrible jerks that we, whose comedy we enjoy. And I do notice that you like to post out of context, Flight of the Concord stuff. They are the best, right? I rewatched that at the beginning of the pandemic. and I did I'll, too. I'll probably do another rewatch soon. It's just, I, I don't... The stuff that I like, I often just try. I refuse to think about too hard because I don't want to know how it works or why I like it. I want yeah. to be a mystery, um, and I think they're one of the, an example of that. But it's just the wavelength that they are on, and the like understatedness of all of it, and the quiet shame of all of it. It just makes me crack up. It's so good. Who? Uh, what's something else that you've enjoyed recently? Uh, I always love Joe Para. Um, I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melsky's uh, sweater that I got from his uh, merch store right now. I think he sort of exists in a similar space as the Flight of the Concords. So yeah. like understatedness, the embarrassed, the vibe of everything. Yeah. I got to see him at a Creek in the Cave one night. And before <sighs> I knew who he was, he just, you know, I've seen so that's just going there all the time. And these, these random nights, just so many great people would come up. I mean, when I lived in New York uh, before I uh, moved west for grad school in 2017, I was in Greenpoint and I, you know, I went to the creek too. And uh, I had the flautas. Uh, I had the yeah. <laughs> I was part of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I do miss during the like, worst part for me of the pandemic. Not the worst part. The mass death is the worst part. One of yeah. the things I miss most um, is just being able to like walk out of my apartment, get on a bus, and go into like, a dark room and see people do shit that they came up with earlier that day. Well, this, this has been uh, really great. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, best luck. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Thank you to Seth Simons. I have like this Simmons block on his name. Cough button. Okay. We got to go fast in the New York and East coast division of March sadness. We had High School Musical go up against Backup, and High School Musical won. When I was a junior in high school, I had a girlfriend who made me break up with myself. I was the drum major of the marching band, and she was the head cheerleader. We were just a few characters short of a high school musical. Anyway, after prom, before her graduation, she came over to my house one evening, and when we sat down on the couch, she said nothing. Literally nothing. We had hung out as normal the day before. I didn't know it was up, so I started asking questions about her family, school, if everything was okay. She would only nod or shake her head. Eventually, I got around to asking whether it was about us. Slight nod. Was she unhappy? Slight nod. Did she want to break up? Weird, enthusiastic nod. So, did we just break up, I asked? Nod. Then she left. She didn't say a word the entire time. Four days later, she graduated, and I don't think I ever saw her again. Guess I was a bad prom date. Our sad 16 judge said high school musical the sheer absurdity of the premise a girlfriend who made me break up with myself 
The escalating strangeness of the quote-unquote conversation where the boy has to read her mind and the timing of the breakup post-prom, this is Adolescent Emotional Literacy by Kafka. And our judge that sent this into the final four said, If only all breakups consisted of single-sided conversation and a series of nods, the breakup story is strangely liberating while also being deeply sad. Ultimately, I'm happy for this person. Drum major, you dodged a bullet. Head cheerleader, nice. All right. So, High School Musical will go up against... Uh... Green Jumpsuit and Nightcrawler went head-to-head. Nightcrawler was the story of uh, the guy who got blue paint all over the person's car. If you want to check that out, you can go into the archives. Green Jumpsuit was the winner. A couple of years ago, my father went to prison. There were so many sad moments involved in that, both in the lead-up to it happening, through the sentencing, and then the really horrible reality of it actually coming to pass. Some of the things involved in that ordeal are beyond what you have in mind. A sentencing, for example, is heartbreaking beyond description and something wouldn't one wouldn't wish on their worst enemy. But some of the sadder moments were small and almost bittersweet. There was one time I went to visit by myself. I had been a few times and sort of gotten used to it. I'd grown accustomed to the staff intimidations, the awful ambiance of the visiting room that felt like spending an afternoon in a dusty bus station, the sight of children leaping into the arms of their fathers. I'd become inured to the sight of my elderly father in his green jumpsuit ambling slowly toward me, a shell of his former self. This time, instead of a cross, he sat next to me. A football game was on on one of the TVs. We sat and watched and chatted. We caught up, recalled old times. We laughed. For a moment, everything was fine. We were father and son again, enjoying a Sunday afternoon watching football. But then we saw the clock approaching the late afternoon. Visiting hours were coming to an end. My dad nervously took the note that we better say goodbye so as not to risk any trouble. That carefree moment was over. We said our goodbyes. A guard handed me back my ID, and before I left, I turned back once more to see my father anxiously waiting. A guard would have to let him back into the bunks um, where the bunks were. He fidgeted with his hands, and he sat looking totally helpless and vulnerable. This man, who once seemed like a giant in my imagination, waited like a child, hoping to evade harsh punishment. Uh, so that one wins. Green Jumpsuit versus High School Musical. Final four next week. Uh, go donate some money if you feel inclined. Go to cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Thanks to Seth Simons. Uh, download the newsletter if you want. And I will talk to you guys next week. Final four.